90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm going to say, I'm assuming my future self is doing well. <laughs> yeah, that's right, because we're recording this a little bit ahead of time. Uh, that's right, because this is the uh, first week of field camp, and um, scheduling anything during that is often pretty hard. So hopefully, future self, you're alive, and you haven't fried in the hot Colorado sun, and you're doing good. Well, you know, and uh, I, I know the Colorado sun is hot, but I've certainly enjoyed watching it and the nice... Uh, the nice blooming of everything <laughs> uh from you know my my office window with my uh, my mountain dew there ah uh, yeah mm-hmm. yeah i appreciate that I'll, I'll be out in the middle of all that blooming that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you um colorado humidity it doesn't exist <laughs> uh no i had a a bright blue like you would see on a spark plug spark about half an inch long uh, go directly from my finger into the USB port of my computer oh, today. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Are you just saying that into the USB port to say that you should probably get a Mac without USB ports? Is that where you're going with this? Or <laughs> I know that this was on the USB-C on the Mac. And all I can say is they must have outstanding electrostatic discharge protection <laughs> because it works great. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Um, yeah, when I know when I get back from camp, it feels like I'm swimming in the humidity in Oklahoma. And Oklahoma's pretty dry, too. So, yeah, it's pretty bad out here. Yeah. We're, uh, we're going to continue our march through the solar system this week, right? Exactly. So, speaking of a planet without uh, any humidity, right, let's go to Mercury. We're happy to be joined by Dr. Karen Stocksteel-Cahill. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Hi. I'm glad to be here. So, Karen, could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into the field of astrogeology or something similar to that? <laughs> right. Well, I sort of consider myself to be a planetary geologist because I studied the geology of other planets. And I kind of took a circuitous route here because I started out in physics and astronomy as an undergrad, uh, which does help with what I do now, of course. But um the way I got into geology was I had to take a science class outside my discipline. I was going to a liberal arts college, Ohio Wesleyan University. And so I thought, well, I'll just go upstairs and I'll take rocks for jocks, get it, get that out of the way. And <laughs> I absolutely loved the class. And I was in the professor's office asking questions constantly. And I ended up doing an independent study in geophysics um, just because I didn't have a class that lined up before I left graduated from college. So I really got into it and managed to get an internship at the Lunar and Planetary Institute after I graduated. So my college roommate, Kathy, encouraged me to apply for this program that she'd seen advertised. And at that point, I got to work with Dr. Faith Vilas studying uh, Iepetus and um, went on to work with a couple of scientists at the Lunar and Planetary Institute after that, studying the moon, Dr. Paul Spudis and Dr. Graham Ryder, and then decided to go back to grad school. And I did a, under, a match, master's degree in just straight geology. I studied a lava flow out on, out on Mount Rainier, and then did a PhD studying Mars geology. So kind of circuitous route, but got me where I am and 
everything has been so useful so far. So <laughs> I love it. you. You literally ping ponged around the uh, the whole solar system to get. I to know. Mercury. I know. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> it's like Saturn to the Moon to Mars to right. Mercury. Um, that's great. And I love how many people get into geology because they had an excellent intro geology professor. Yes. It just warms my heart every time. Yeah, I took I took my Geology 101 from Dr. Bart Martin at Ohio Wesleyan University, and he really was supportive in answering all my questions and helping me to tie it in with what I'd learned in all my physics classes. So, oh, That's so great. Mostly, John, John and I both have meteorology backgrounds, so most people that we know that were in physics sort of go towards meteorology when they do, you know, geosciences. So I'm super excited that you, you know, launched straight past the atmosphere and onto a different rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you said you started out being interested in astronomy, right? So how did, how did that path get started? Oh, gosh. I think my earliest memory of space is being in the theater and watching Star Wars. This is back when we only called them Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. It wasn't episode uh, X, Y, Z, right? <laughs> yeah, um, uh-huh. And I rem- I have memories of being in the theater as probably a five-year-old, I think, watching Star Wars. So I, from early on, I really had an interest in space. And so as I got older, you know, I got a telescope and I took physics and astronomy in high school and even went off and took um, physics 101 at the local community college. So I knew that's kind of the route I wanted to go. Um, studying space. And it was when I was in college that I realized what I really wanted to study was other planets. And that's really more in the realm of geology rather than astronomy. Um, Astronomy's more studying the stars or the solar systems, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I could trace it all the way back to Star Wars. I guess. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I want to know how many people in our same age range can do that, though, you know? I know. It's probably <laughs> 90% of us, right? Right, exactly. And it's like, if it's not Star Wars, it's Star Trek. So, you know. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's great. Yep. Star Trek TNG. So, yep. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that you said you went into geology for your master's instead of geophysics with an already physics background. It, was there a, a reason behind that? Or was geophysics more exploration oriented at that time? Um, I guess what happened was I, when I did that internship at LPI, I then became a visiting graduate fellow. And I told you that I worked with Dr. Paul Spudis and Dr. Greg Ryder, and I worked with them looking at Clementine data of the moon. Clementine was a joint NASA DOD mission that went to the moon and collected a variety of data sets of the moon. And then I also got to work with Apollo 17 impact melt breaches that the astronauts back, brought back from the moon. And at that point, I kind of really knew that I wanted to do study hard rock geology and volcanoes and things like that. So it really has to, it, it really has to do with how my life sort of went about between my undergraduate degree and grad school. So I had a couple years in there where I just worked and got to know what I wanted to do and really focused my interests 
I really want to fangirl out on impact brushes because that's what I, I do. <laughs> I do paleomagnetism and my master's was in impact brushes as well. Not on the moon in Missouri, but you know, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. They're probably more interesting in Missouri. <laughs> the, the, the litter ones are really just these dry gray rocks. There's they, uh, they don't, they don't look all that interesting, although they are <laughs> to geologists anyway. I don't know if you've been to Missouri lately, Karen, but they're, they're the same. <laughs> Mine were also gray and boring, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, so I'm curious, what drew you into studying Mercury? As Shannon said, and you told us in your background, you kind of bounced around the solar system some. Mars, the moon, icy satellites. So what, what brought you into looking at Mercury? Well, you know, it was really a matter of logistics. Um, we were living out in Hawaii. I'd just gotten married and had my first child. And my husband and I, he's also a planetary geologist, so we were looking for a location where we could both get jobs. And the DC area was a great place for that. And one of the offers I got was from Dr. Tim McCoy at the Smithsonian. And at the time he had an opening for somebody studying Mercury with the messenger team. Messenger was a mission that went to Mercury and it stands for Mercury Surface Space Environment Geochemistry and Ranging. And so they were, do, they were in orbit at Mercury at the time, and he kind of needed a postdoc to come and do some research on the geochemistry and kind of understanding the data that was coming back from the surface. So it was really sort of lucky logistics. My husband and I were coming here, and this postdoc opportunity opened up. And once I started working with Tim, studying Mercury, I just really got hooked because it's this really dark and mysterious planet and <laughs> it throws us for a loop. It has lots of volatiles that we don't expect because it's so close to the sun and um, it's abundant sulfur and abundant, abundant carbon and things that just make it stand out from the rest of the terrestrial planets. I mean, these messenger pictures when they came out, like I remember, you know, being in school when this was happening in grad school and just being so surprised because it was really mysterious before then, right? We just didn't have a lot of data about Mercury in general. Yeah, before that, it was really, we had Marin, Mariner 10 flybys and we had telescopic data. And we knew it had very low iron because we weren't seeing the signatures of iron and silicates that we tend to see in spectral data. But beyond that, we really didn't have complete global, global coverage of Mercury, and we're so much closer now. So uh, so what did Messenger sort of elucidate about like Mercury's formation that we didn't know before that then, besides this iron business? Well, um, I think we were able, better able to constrain the size of its core um, using the Messenger moment of inertia data and we figured out that the core is nearly three quarters of its mass. Um, I think they knew before that it was a very dense planet and that it must have a large core, but I think we were better, better able to constrain that. So I think what Messenger to also told us though is that the surface is very different than we expected. It's um, low in iron, it's got high magnesium, uh, but lower aluminum and calcium and some of the other things that we might expect. Um, and it's got abundant sulfur and carbon um, and even sodium 
chlorine and potassium, these are all volatile elements that we didn't expect to be abundant on the surface of mercury. So given that the core makes up three cores of its mass, which is much more than the Earth's core does, that's indication of very high degrees of differentiation as well as the makeup, right? Right. Uh, well, it, we are still trying to understand why the core is so large in Mercury. And one theory is that um, a large impactor ran into Mercury after it had formed in our solar system. And this solar system could have been up to 85% of the mass of Earth, ran into it and just kind of disrupted it and spalled off um, pieces of its crusts. And so it's sort of been peeled by that impact event. Um, but we're not totally sure we understand the energetics of that large of an impact and how that would play out. So, um, you know, we, we're still trying to understand all that. And we have lots of data and we're going to be getting more soon with the new mission coming up, Bepi Colombo. So hopefully we'll be able to answer these questions a little more thoroughly. So I didn't know if that was still sort of the thinking is that, you know, the mercury that we see now is not what mercury would have been four billion years ago. Like it would have been a lot larger potentially. I mean, if you get hit by an impactor that size, right? Right. So they think that proto-mercury was perhaps two to five times more massive than it is today. And that it just, everything just got smashed off of it during that large impact. So more the impact is responsible as opposed to just sitting and baking so close to the sun? Yeah. Or I, both? I, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't know that... Be, I think being so close to the sun... They, I mean, there are theories that um, some of the material would have been burned off be, because of its proximity to the sun. But we really expect that to be more volatile elements um, okay. that get driven off. Okay. But you said it's still actually outgassing volatiles, huh? Um, well, there's probably, there's, there's lots of volatiles at the surface. And okay. it's possible those are still at gassing. I mean, we see them in the exosphere as well. Um, it's got okay. a very thin atmosphere. It's like, if you take our atmosphere and... Um, put 14 zeros in a decimal place in front of it. That's pretty much <laughs> what the atmosphere of Mercury is. So it's it's very tenuous. But, you know, it's it's got things like oxygen in it, but it's also got things like sodium and um, potassium and helium, things like that. So um, anytime you have the photons from the sun interacting with the surface, it's going to drive off some of that material, especially the volatile ones. Right. Well, that's impressive that it's still holding on to it after all this time, right? I know. It is. It's very confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. That is really interesting. Well, so considering that the, the surface has a really large temperature range, I mean, we're looking, you know, minus almost 200 Celsius up to a little over 400 Celsius. So that's uh, minus 300 to 800 Fahrenheit uh, for those of us that think that way. I imagine that causes some pretty unexpected geochemical things to happen on the surface with, with the materials there. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's something that I deal with a lot with my spectroscopic studies, where I look at uh, how the minerals individually combine to make a spectrum of the rock. 
And one thing that's happening at on surf, planetary surfaces that don't have an atmosphere is space weathering. So basically you have micrometeorites constantly hitting the surface. And that's going to be a little bit different on Mercury just because it's warmer. So we, um, we expect there to be space weathering, but certain aspects of it are, are sped up. Uh, so um, it kind of, it in Mercury's case, it results in the spectra being um, very dark, so low reflectance. And when we're looking at spectra, we tend to look for little dips in the spectrum called absorption features that indicate different minerals. And on Mercury, those are pretty much all obliterated. So it's, it's challenging to understand the spectral nature of the surface of Mercury because of that, that space weathering environment. So in space weathering, you would not only be talking about impacts, but also very large radiation exposure, right? Right, right. There's a, a number of different co contributors to this, and it varies throughout the solar system. Something that's further from the sun might have more of an influence of the uh, micrometeorites versus the solar radiation. And then when we're not talking about weathering like water weathering, like we would talk about on Mars. No, you're right. You're right. Um, I remember I was taking geomorphology when I was uh, working down in Houston, and the guy was giving me the defi definition of soils, and I said, well, why do they call them lunar soils then? Because they're not necessarily <laughs> chemically changed. They're just beaten up by <laughs> micrometeorites and such. So, yeah, we're talking about weathering in a completely different aspect. It doesn't necessarily change the chemistry, but it might rearrange how that chemistry is distributed on the surface, on, within the rock itself. Right. Okay. And so what about, uh, since there are, it's got a very large or a very long day length on Mercury. So do you see significant thermal stresses and weathering from thermal processes as well? You know, I'm not sure if we do or not. Um, they they do see um, evidence that Mercury over time has shrunk. That's just basically the cooling of the, the core and the mantle and, and things contract when they as they cool. And so you see um, evidence of that, but I don't know that we've been able to study, up, study it close enough up to really recognize those types of thermal stresses. We need to find a meteorite that's from Mercury to f more fully understand that. Okay. What are our chances of doing that? <laughs> well, there have been people that did sort of back of the envelope calculations that say that we should have at least one meteorite from Mercury in our collection based on, you know, the how likely it is the, that a rock could get smashed off the surface of Mercury and make it to intersect with Earth's um, tri trip around the sun. So there should be one out there. It's just whether or not we could recognize it. <laughs> it's like all of geology is summed up in looking at a rock and saying, where did you come from and when did you form? Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Can't you guys just have name tags so we can just figure this out and move on? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> uh, yes, it would. <laughs> you know, or the question is, has somebody found it and said, this doesn't look like it belongs here, not representative, and moved on. Oh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> that one's a little painful. 
Or it could be grouped in with another asteroid. Maybe it's similar in, or with an asteroid parent body. So maybe it's similar enough to another group and we just said, oh, you know, um, we'll just call it this. They, there is a group um, called Bencubbinites that have been proposed. Um, I think that was prior to Messenger's visit to Mercury. But they were proposed as a possible analog to Mercury materials. Hmm. So what do we know about Mercury in terms of plate tectonics? Is it tectonically active since it's differentiated and has this core? Do we see any evidence that it's still active? Uh, gosh, we're getting into geophysics, which is pushing, <laughs> pushing it for me. But um, we don't necessarily see plate tectonics like we see here on Earth where large plates moved around and, and things like that. But we do see... Um, tectonic landforms like faulting and things like that, which show us that Mercury's uh, size has decreased over time. And so the crust had to crack to accommodate that shrinkage. Uh, we also see um, a slight magnetosphere, which is unique in our solar system too. Earth is the only other terrestrial planet that shows a magnetosphere. Uh, so Mercury has a weak magnetosphere, which indicates that there's probably some sort of activity within maybe the outer core that produces the, the magnetic field. So Shannon, that sounds like a job for paleomagnetics. It does. I know. I was just <laughs> yes. like writing down. I'm like, okay, what do we, what do we need to do next here? I mean, and that, that explains a lot about, you know, why Mercury hasn't fried to death too, being that close to the sun. Right. Yeah, that's. I'm, I'm just going to need access to all your meteorites, and I'll solve this for you. Okay. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> so one of the other sort of weird things that you had mentioned about Mercury uh, in the show notes was that the model of how the crust formed this flotation of crust was strange compared to what happened on Earth, right? Yeah. So um, one of the ideas is that Mercury differentiated and formed this flotation crust. And we have this idea for the moon too, where you have a molten body and the minerals start crystallizing out in that molten body and the really light ones, and the moon, in the case of the moon, plagioclase, um, the really light ones that are less dense than the, the liquid can float to the top and they just sort of form this shell. And so that's how we think we got the light colored parts of the moon. It's a rock called a northosite, and it's something like 90, 95% plagioclase. On Mercury, because of the conditions that it formed under, which have very low amounts of oxygen, low, low oxygen fugacity, um, we expect that plagioclase probably wouldn't have crystallized out and had floated to the top, but instead we would have had graphite forming, and it could have floated to the top and formed sort of a shell around the, the surface of Mercury. A graphite shell. Yeah. That's a very fascinating <laughs> idea. I know. <laughs> and it does... really weird. I know. It's really weird, but it does explain... It could explain why the surface of Mercury is so dark. It's generally darker than the dark parts of the moon. And we also see fairly abundant uh, carbon, ranging from about 1 to 3 weight percent, um, at the surface of Mercury. There so you, there you go. 
it sort of fits into the story at this point. <laughs> Mercury, the writing utensil of the solar system. Okay. Right. I <laughs> say <laughs> we sure that outer part wasn't just erased. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's possible. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> moving on. Uh, so when we look at all these different planets, you know, and kind of what we're trying to work through while we're doing this really cool solar system show. I mean, what does Mercury teach us about everyone else in the solar system, all the other bodies? Well, I think Mercury has kind of thrown us for a loop. It's, um, we have these formation models and they tell us what we should see in the different parts of the solar system. And Mercury sort of turned that on up on end because mm-hmm. it's got so much, we would think it would lack volatiles, but it's so volatile rich. Um, But I think it just teaches us that we have to keep working on our models. And as we get this new information from new missions and such, that we have to try to figure out how it fits into the story. All right. So one question that I'm really excited to see what people (laughs) have to say for different planetary bodies that they work on is if we were able to magically (laughs) transport you, you could go to Mercury uh, and live there for a month and work unrestrained, where would you go and what would you want to do? Oh, gosh. Uh-huh. I, that's a really hard question because, you know, I think I could travel all over Earth at this point and never stop. So uh, to be able to go to Mercury and pick one place is tough. And as scientists, we spend years debating this kind of thing. Um, you know, I think the hollows, there are things objects called hollows that have formed at the surface of Mercury that are really intriguing. They look very young. They're bright material or these depressions that are forming and they're very shallow. Um, and they're, they indicate that there's material being actively lost from the surface. So I think those are pretty intriguing. Um, there are bright pryoclastic deposits that are northeast of Rachmaninoff Basin. Um, I think I would want to try to go visit a few of the basins because basins and craters are places where you're sampling from depth. So you can learn more about the layered geology of, of a planet by looking at those. So, but then you have the Northern volcanic plains. So I think I'd have to do a world world tour of Mercury. So maybe it's good that it's kind of a small planet. <laughs> that, that, that was going to be my joke. I was like, well, it could be worse. You could be trying to, find your way around something much larger um right so you're betraying your igneous background i feel like with your answers (laughs) i know i am (laughs) because i'm totally like no i want to see those striations that look like plate tectonic activity you know yeah that's that's my choice (laughs) well i really just want a seismic line (laughs) (laughs) don't we all I feel I feel like that's like what I always looked at when we talked about Mercury was those um, you know the stuff to talk about what plate tectonic activity was going on. Right. And it's it's hilarious to me that you have a physics background and you're like, oh, I'm not qualified for that. <laughs> Here I am. Like, I have a geology background. I'm like, no, hit the plate tectonics. <laughs> yeah. There's so much igneous activity in the solar system. Whatever. <laughs> But I mean, that, that's like a funny question, but this is a for real thing that scientists have to grapple with when planning these missions, especially if you've got a rover, right? Like, where's right. the one place, if you can't move once you get there by any chance, like what's going to maximize 
your scientific learning. That's that's hard. I know the process is fascinating to watch. They usually start with maybe half a dozen or a dozen different locations and they for years they meet and discuss those locations and usually groups advocate for a specific location and then they just narrow it down over the years until they have picked a location and of course we're also constrained by the engineering so if you need solar if you need solar power you have to be kind of close to the equator the engineers are very risk adverse so they don't want to land any place that's got a lot of topography things like that it has to be flat so um, (laughs) it's it's tough when you have to pick just one location yeah to go to yeah no kidding no kidding i mean we could be picking a comet streaking through the the solar system. <laughs> That's so. true. <laughs> it is a little easier than that, but still. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the things that have you really excited right now, whether they be scientific or technological in terms of your areas of study? Oh, gosh. Um, well, let me think. We are... Um, I'm working with Patrick Poplowski. We're trying to better understand the geochemical terrains that are on Mercury. Um, they previously had been mapped using a combination of sort of geochemistry and the geomorphology, but we're really trying to just map geochemical terrains using geochemistry to better understand the di- their differences and what it means for their, their history. Um, and, you know, this is data from messenger which um actually it's ironic that we're discussing messenger data today because three years ago today is when we crash landed it onto the surface of mercury and the mission ended so it's it's an apt day to be studying these (laughs) not a coincidence at all we planned that (laughs) (laughs) so you know you have to you had we had to dispose of the um orbiter (laughs) At some at, at some point, so um, it ended three years ago today. But you know, we're, three years later, we're still trying to, to understand this stuff, and um, we should have more data coming now from Bepi Colombo, which is a joint European Space Agency and Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency mission. It's mm. going to be really cool. It's got two different orbiters that are being uh, launched and propelled towards Mercury together. Um, and they're supposed to be launching next October. And they will arrive and insert into orbit around Mercury, I think, in December of 2025. And they'll be collecting a variety of data. Some of it overlaps Messenger, so it'll be confirmation. And some of it is um, completely new instrumentation. So it should be really exciting to see what they what comes back from that mission. So 2025, that sounds like a relatively... Uh, conservative trajectory so you don't have to to break too hard when you get there are there any interesting (laughs) along the way missions as well or is it going to be pretty much a passive flight well when you go to these planets a lot of times you do a bunch of flybys in order to sort of aero break (laughs) and i don't know if that's what the engineers call it but basically um, I'm trying to think. I think Bepi Colombo has a couple of Venus flybys. It's got one Earth flyby and probably five or six Mercury flybys. And that's kind of what Messenger did as well. And 
basically it it's just a way to slow down the spacecraft without burning too much fuel to do so it's much easier to insert into orbit when you use planetary gravity conditions to to, to slow your orbiter for you so yeah it does it takes a long time and it just kind of keeps swinging through the inner solar system <laughs> back and forth until it it's slowed down enough to to get into orbit around mercury so the two uh orbiters will be in a polar orbit one will be more circular and the other will be elliptical like messenger was hmm. and so in in looking at these spacecraft data i i have not had the opportunity to really look at much spacecraft data in the past uh but are there specific you know tools that you have to use or is it what are some of the processes you have to go through to process spacecraft data? I imagine it's a, a pretty complicated series of corrections to even get to some of the more basic parameters. Yeah, it does take a lot of time to get things calibrated so that the data is very useful. And I was lucky enough to be the recipient of already processed data for these. There, but like, So, for example, Messenger had um, an X-ray spectrometer and it had a gamma ray neutron spectrometer. So those data, you know, they, they collect data about the elemental composition of the surface of Mercury. And um, we also have magnetometer data, laser, laser altimeter data, things like that. So there are entire teams dedicated to figuring out the calibration of these instruments. Even the spectrometer data has to be calibrated to make it useful. And so they, you know, they, they work very hard and, and they're very smart people that are doing these calibration techniques to make the data useful to the rest of the community. All right. And so one, uh, one final question that I had was if somebody was interested in pursuing a career path like this, what would be a piece of advice that you would give to them? Well, I think... The, the one thing that really influenced my, my career path was participating in internships. So I got to be an intern at the Lunar Planetary Institute. And it really, it led to a, a fellowship for a couple years afterwards. And it really helped me to focus and understand what it is exactly I wanted to do. So I think trying out the field as an intern is important. Um, and also just finding mentors that can help you navigate and figure out where you want to go and what you want to do is helpful. So I've had a couple of mentors that really spurred on my career. And um, it doesn't matter what your route is, you'll get there eventually. So don't worry about it too much if you wander a bit. <laughs> I mean, it's just like taking that intro geology class, you know, during your junior senior year right like you never know yeah um i think that trying on is a really important part of that you know i think a lot of people go in and they're like this is what i want but then the job isn't like reading the textbook right yeah that's very true yeah and a lot of it like you said is serendipity because you know you could still be looking at iapetus and you would have never known the the joys of mercury right so yeah it's just in and not to be 
I guess I try to tell this a lot. I don't know how much you feel about this too, but just like not to be afraid to go out and ask people, you know, who do you know? Because like we were talking about before the show, you know, it's it's a small community. And so, you know, people can get you where you want to go to help pursue whatever you think you want to pursue. That's very true. It's very true. And just try out all the different opportunities you can. I mean, I've been to three different field camps and I learned a little something new at each one. One was just, one was general geology and two of them were volcanology field courses, one in New Mexico and one in Hawaii. So it was very different volcanic settings, but that experience helps when I'm looking at these types of features on other planets. So, right. I always tell my, my field class that, you know, the person that sees the most rocks wins, right? And it's absolutely true. They never believe me, but. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're always going to run across something where you're like, what the heck is this? Yes. <laughs> what is More often on? than not. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Karen, is there anything else that you would like to add? Gosh, I can't think of it. Anything. Um, it's. It's an exciting time in planetary, I think. We, we're having more and more emissions from um, Europe and Japan and th- places like that. So we, are, we have a wealth of data, and we're all just working so hard to squeeze out every bit of information that we can from it. All right. And is there any way that you would like to be found on the Internet? Well, people can go to the Planetary Science Institute webpage, which is psi.edu, and it has a list of scientists, and you can find your way there and find a way to get in touch with me there. So, All right, excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I had a really fun time talking to you about Mercury. Well, Shannon, uh Mercury sounds like it's still a pretty mysterious place. <laughs> yeah, I really would have thought that we had we'd learned a lot more about it. But I mean, I guess just like she said, that's what makes it more exciting too, is because there's still so much we have yet to learn about it. Yeah. So I'm excited to get on to Venus in our series. But before we can move on to next week's show, it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> now, this is something that we don't have on Mercury, right? Not many pigeons there. Uh, no. And this, this particular <laughs> paper has sent me down a whole new vein of literature oh. <laughs> for Fun Paper Friday. It is Pigeon's Discrimination of Paintings by Monet and Picasso by Watanabe et al. So you're really into pidge lit? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. So <laughs> there are, I, I knew some of the past studies about, okay, we're going to try to use pigeons to drive a missile towards an enemy ship or just a few weird things that we've done with pigeons. But <laughs> man, showing pigeons paintings and having them try to discriminate the artists so what I got from this is pigeons are really smart. Yeah. Like really <laughs> smart. Like I don't think I, I love this because, you know, you're <laughs> you're probably 
definitely not the more humanities person of the two of us. That's definitely me. And I, I like to think that maybe these pigeons are even better than you would be at <laughs> discerning Picasso's and Monet's. They are undoubtedly better than I would be. <laughs> I, I love that thought while I was thinking about this. This is a very excellently laid out um, experiment, too. I know you appreciated this. <laughs> yes, the the methodology was very sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and this is what they did, right? So it says, you know, we can look at Picasso and Monet... And you can see differences and, you know, whether somebody's an impressionist or a cubist and things like this. But can pigeons do that same sort of thing, too? And it turns out they actually can. And this was built on some pigeon studies, which I'm sure you got to in your pigeonlet, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they could actually tell the difference between Stravinsky and Mozart as well. Yeah, so that's coming up in the fun paper queue. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I assumed so. <laughs> okay, so we won't talk about their hewing acu- hearing acuity, but they have really excellent excellent visual skills, as we will find out. Yeah, so they took, and this does date the paper a little bit to 95. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because they took pictures of the paintings from art books and then took it on slide film and used a slide projector or a video reel projector. <laughs> Good old slide projector. I wonder if that scared the pigeons. Ka-chunk, ka-chunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they would project these images in these experimental cells. And some of the pigeons were trying to uh, identify Monet, and some were trying to identify Picasso. And if they tapped correctly, they would get access to food. Right. So food is what. All these animals love, right? Um, (laughs) And it actually didn't take... It took some of these birds not long at all to be able to identify this. I thought this was really interesting because there was quite the the spectrum of how long it took to train the birds, right? So they trained the birds until they were at least 90% correct um, on a couple of sessions of identifying whichever one they were supposed to identify, Right, and there was a big range of some birds learned really fast and some it took quite a bit longer. Yeah, you know, and you said that food is always the the motivation here, which it is in many of these studies. But thinking back to where the pigeons beat me at identifying this, you know, if you put a bunch of slides of Picasso and Monet paintings in front of me and a sleeve of Thin Mints... It might work. You think you could buckle down and uh, get some culture? Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. So they have some graphs in here of uh, a learning curve, pretty much, where they say how many training sessions the pigeons had. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly enough, during training session one and sometimes training session two, they start out at almost exactly 50-50, perfect chance. Okay, yeah. And then by the training session 15, they're anywhere between 90 and 100%. It's impressive. Like I said, that's impressive. I don't know if, I don't know if my students could do that well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they mixed things up a little bit. So they, they would use different pigeons for each of these, of course. Uh, they said, what if we left, right, or up, down mirror these paintings Mm -hmm. yeah and (laughs) 
what I love is that there's a difference between the Monet and Picasso groups when it comes to doing this and how many they got correct after they were changed up. Yeah, so Monet, being an Impressionist, had softer lines and mm-hmm. more recognizable forms. So when you turn the picture upside down, the birds didn't do as well on the test. Left and right was much less of an effect. Right, exactly, because who cares if you're staring across the Seine from your blanket on the shores from the right side or the left side. <laughs> doesn't matter. But Pigeons don't care. <laughs> if you're upside down, that's pretty strange. Exactly. Uh, the Picassos, on the other hand, the more cubist paintings, uh, it's an innocent mistake. I could hang it on the wall upside down, some of exactly. them. Exactly. I love it so much. Even pigeons don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> but they still correctly identified the Picassos, no matter what orientation they were, because they don't have any sort of basis in reality. I love it. That is the best outcome of this paper. <laughs> And apparently pigeons are very good with geometry and rotated geometry as well as splitting up an object. So another yeah. dive into my uh, pigeon here <laughs> was a study where they were exposed to pictures of Charlie Brown and then were shown different pieces of Charlie Brown individually and were still able to identify that as Charlie Brown, even if it's That's... just a foot or an arm or the shirt. No kidding. This is interesting. Uh, did you did you go as far in the pigeon as the one where they can't do that with pictures of pigeons? I thought that was really weird. Uh, no, I haven't gone that far into meta pigeon okay. yet. Okay, <laughs> it's coming. Don't worry. Yeah. So <laughs> I was really surprised at the effectiveness. It you know this is. I was like, I wonder how this does compared to a machine learning algorithm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would wonder, too. That's very interesting. Um, They talked about uh, changing the colors as well, didn't they? Yeah, so they did uh, the same images in monochrome. Mm -hmm. Because Monet and Picasso colors, way different. And they said very specifically that they didn't use anything atypical Picasso, like the blue period, just so those Picasso fans know out there. Okay, go ahead. Right. And (laughs) so there was some effect, but they were unable to pinpoint any single thing as being pigeons use color to tell these apart pigeons use geometry to tell these but no they use all of it it's a polymorphic decision yeah pigeons are people (laughs) yeah so that was (laughs) you know maybe those pigeons that get into buildings are just wanting to scope out the art so true so true that that, air, that airport art is alluring. <laughs> Very Picasso-esque, too. <laughs> yes, and it might be upside down. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know, I wonder if you could train pigeons to identify features from aerial imagery of planets, like peck all of the craters. This is great. I mean... Pigeons are way cheaper than undergrads, so I like this. <laughs> <laughs> and way cheaper than grad students. Exactly. I'm a I'm a poor assistant professor here. This is this is <laughs> what I'm gonna go. Okay. I'm gonna need some new lap space. <laughs> so there you go. You're gonna have pigeons working on your Ziderfeld analysis. They're gonna do just as good as I am. I don't know if you tried to you have tried to do that. 
Well, you know, I said they started out at 50-50 chance, but I'm not sure there's a lot of a learning curve on the Ziderfeld. Yeah, that is true. So, so it'll be fine. It's fine. I'll just throw out I'll throw out every other one. We'll be good. Perfect. <laughs> well, if you have an idea on what we should use pigeons for, maybe to make our show notes, <laughs> we would love to hear them. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can come hang out in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter. We're at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. And if you feel like this podcast adds a lot of value to your life, then please support us, patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.